and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Lindsay Ware of Science Dogs of New England about breed selection for unique uses, big game tracking, and much more. Lindsay and I do spend quite a bit of this episode talking about big game tracking. So if you are squeamish about discussions of blood or minor discussions about, you know, hunting types of organ wounds, those sorts of things, this might be a good episode to skip. But I do encourage you to stick around because Lindsay's knowledge is really deep. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, And again, I think it's worth sticking around. I'm super excited to get to this interview, but before we get to it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. So this week, we are talking about a paper that is hot off the presses, published in February 2022. The title is Effects of Learning an Increasing Number of Odors on Olfactory Learning, Memory, and Generalization in Detection Dogs. This was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science by Paul Wagner et al., Their main question was, how does the number of target odors impact learning, memory, and generalization? So what they did is they took nine dogs, all Labrador retrievers, and trained them to learn a bunch of new odors. And the big thing to know is that the dogs rapidly learned new odors with no decrease in recall of previously trained odors. I'm going to quote from the abstract now. So they they found that alert generalization to similar odors was unaffected by training on many odors. They trained the dogs to respond to up to 40 odors in an odor discrimination task over the span of 16 months. The odors were trained in sets of 10 every three months, and recall of previously trained subsets was assessed at intervals of less than one month, four months, and 12 months since the last exposure, and after learning 10, 20, 30, and 40 cumulative odors. They assessed the effects of training on these large number of target odors on generalization to untrained but related target odors, and dogs rapidly learned new odor discrimination across the 40 odors with little to no decrease in the recall of previously trained odors or in generalization to related odors. Furthermore, the dogs recalled odors not experienced within 12 months with 100% accuracy and no increase in false alarm rate. These results indicate that the limits of odor identification recall capabilities were not challenged by training on a cumulative total of 40 odor discriminations, nor by up to a 12-month gap in exposure to these odors, therefore establishing the robust capabilities of dogs for learning and remembering many target odor identifications. So in their different sets of target odors, they included things, um, so in set A was smokeless powder, ammonium nitrate, uh, TNT, C4, safety fuse, etc., um, and then in set B, they had tea bags, nitrocellulose, vinegar, uh, baking powder, a couple other things. Set three included things like tea tree oil, poppy seeds, butter flavoring, ranch flavoring, butterscotch candy, um, aspirin. Um, then in set D, uh, and all, all of these I'm not including all 10 because I don't want to read all 40 of these. Um, and then in set D, they included antibiotic cream, concrete ready mix, antacid tablets, beef flavoring cubes, sesame oil, <laughs> crayon shavings, and again, a couple other things. And then for their generalization test odors, they um, used um, a couple that I, gosh, I've never heard of any of these. Pyrodex, Tannerite, Cast TNT, Flex X, Anne and Sugar, and PW4. Really, really interesting study here, again, looking at the dog's ability to learn a whole bunch of different odors um, and remember them going on forward. So really, really interesting stuff. Again, you can find that over in Applied Animal Behavior Science. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Lindsay Ware. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lindsay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into this field? Sure. So I guess, uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by field. So I've been mm-hmm. in wildlife biology for um, a long time. I started out uh, studying wildlife biology for uh, my bachelor's and master's degrees and kind of traveling all around as a technician in a variety of different places working field jobs. Um, as far as starting to incorporate dogs into conservation work, uh, I guess you'd say that started uh, back in about 2011. And mm-hmm. that's when I got really interested in using dogs to find or at least to track uh, wounded game animals for hunters. I actually got into that because of a dog that I had, and I was looking for something to do with him that involved his nose. 
and wasn't really looking to get into anything professionally, kind of looking into to fun stuff. And I ended up learning about wounded game tracking and realized that it was this thing that was legal in my state of Maine, but no one ever talked about it. And I had never heard of it despite being involved in the hunting community. And I, I ended up, uh, cold calling like the one person I could find that was doing it in the state just kind of out of nowhere and it was like this uh I, I was so nervous about it because I was like I just thought she was the most amazing woman running around you know tracking doing this <laughs> tracking thing and uh and begged her to come along with her and to learn what this was all about and this whole idea of using dogs to to um find you know animals for hunters and just to use them in conservation in general and she was really actually i can say this now because we're best friends um she was really resistant (laughs) to the idea at first and then when i finally wore her down and started tracking alongside her we just became instant best friends she's been my funny one of my closest friends and mentors and i just totally fell in love with this whole idea of of working together with dogs for conservation purposes so that's really how I got involved with tracking and then uh, kind of snowballed from there of bringing back in the wildlife biology portion um, of my life from my past and, and getting into conservation detection. Wow. Yeah. I've, I've been really loving lately how different so many people's stories are of how they get into this field. Um, that, you know, like so much of us have, you know, we either started out dog crazy or we started out in the wildlife conservation biology world. But then the exact path from how we get from there into this field is so interesting. Um, I didn't realize that you had done the big game stuff first. Yeah, that's how that's really how I learned about conservation detection, because I was really, I, I really didn't mean to get that much into tracking. I just started getting just loving it so much. It was like the first week of following Susanna around and we were like in the middle of the night in the swamp. And you wouldn't think that this was elicit this reaction, but I was like, this is so awesome. Like I was just going to do it casually. And I just was like, I have to do this all the time. Um, And, and so it kind of went from there where I was started to become more aware of other conservation uses for dogs. And the, um, the fact that it kind of went back to, what was my first love, which was wildlife biology. And I hadn't, I, at the time I wasn't working in that. I was working in laboratory science and I just desperately mm-hmm. wanted to get back into wildlife biology. Um, it, it worked out really well. And I just happened to also be, be becoming dog crazy at that time because <laughs> I was so unsatisfied with the laboratory work that I was actually, I had recently gotten hired as a dog trainer teaching uh, instructing training classes. And so I was doing that on my free time and just uh like learning. So it kind of all merged around the same time. It all kind of came together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you know, cause we're here to talk not just about tracking, um, versus detection. Cause I think we haven't talked about tracking at all on this show yet. Um, I've never tracked, I know nothing about it, but I also wanted to talk to you. Basically, I think I messaged you right after our last, um, conservation dog yappy hour being like oh my gosh you have some interesting dog breeds and i want to talk to you about your dogs how you selected them talking about breed um so why don't we start out yeah with with the dogs you've currently got and maybe also tell us about that first dog if he's no longer with you uh well my first first dog yander he is still with me he's he doesn't work anymore he's very much retired um but yeah he was the original he's a a lab mix And Mm -hmm. he, you know, there wasn't really, because I wasn't into any of this yet, there wasn't really any selection that went to him. I wanted, I was really into um, rescuing dogs at the time. I had rescued dogs previously. And I just thought it would be so cool to rescue a dog and then do something with him and kind of sort of, I was really into hunting at the time. So I kind of was like, oh, maybe we could like go duck hunting together. But I also wanted the dog to kind of dictate you know, what we were going to do. And that's sort of what Gander dictated is something that really suited him was, was tracking. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's Gander and he was the original tracking dog. And then my next tracking dog, uh, was my next dog after that was Aldo. And 
it was a different situation because I wanted to do more tracking. At this point, I was becoming uh-huh. completely obsessed with tracking. And uh, so he was selected for that goal in mind. And Aldo is a standard wire-haired dachshund. Um, which mm-hmm. it was so fun in the days where I was tracking both dogs because you'd show up with like this big Labrador in the back seat and people just expect like, oh yeah, that's the dog uh, that she's going to pull out to go out on this track. And then if it was Aldo's turn for a track, then I'd go to like the little side door and pull out this tiny 15 pound dachshund. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes people would think I was joking, but um, those of us in the blood tracking community, it's actually... Uh, a pretty solid choice for for tracking when you're tracking yeah. on lead. You're tracking in super thick areas. We track a lot of bears here in Maine, and bear habitat is insanely thick. And it, it's really advantageous to have this little tiny dog that can kind of crawl under everything and through everything, as opposed to just kind of crashing through, which is more the gander technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that tracks with what I know about labs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, and it's it's so cool because you know, I think we talk about this a fair bit on this show, but um, you know, we've got some breeds where we still see them working. You know, I think people are broadly aware of you know labs are hunting dogs, and border collies are herding dogs. Um, but I think most people, when they think you know, they think wiener dog, they don't think working dog, they don't think tracking, um, even though, you know, they were, they're hunting dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so tell us a little bit about, because you actually, and I've already forgotten what it was, because again, this was a gappy hour now, like, six weeks ago, he's kind of a subset of the breed or a specific kind of working lineage? Yeah, I would call him like a working line, just like we would, we'd have okay. other breed splits here. Uh, he's from European lines. And primarily, Uh we get our tracking dogs when we are looking at dachshunds from European lines, because it's just like you said, like here, a lot of dachshunds are geared more towards pet or show dogs, where um, in Europe, kind of that uh, tradition of hunting with dachshunds is is very much alive. Mm -hmm. And they've never really, um, you know, made as such of a turn into pets as they have in the United States. Um, so we'd like to get our dogs from working lines over there. And mm-hmm. uh, some people might hear them referred to as tackles. It's kind of like a regional term for like the working line, um, European line dogs. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah they, I think that was the term I was trying to remember. Yeah, tackles. Um, yeah. And, and they've never stopped being hunting dogs, like as far as their lineage goes. And they are tenacious little hunters. Dachshunds were originally bred to hunt badgers to go into a badger hole and basically fight with a badger right so that tells you a lot of a lot of what you need to know about about some of their temperament traits uh they're they're tough little dogs and they we often it's less so now that 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 dachshunds are now that dachshunds are becoming more popular for blood tracking but especially back in the beginning it was like I remember Susanna, who's been tracking with dachshunds forever, and all the looks and stories and things that she would she would have about yeah. you know people saying things about her dogs when she'd pull them out, being like, "Oh goodness!" I've had people tell me afterwards, like, I I had this one track where the hunter was so quiet the whole time, and then we found the deer, and he just was like, his true personality just came out, and he's like, he's like, I thought this was just gonna be like total you know bs and you're just taking your dog for a walk and uh, you know just things that people tell you afterwards um, after after success oh my gosh yeah well and i can imagine to you know depending on you know who's hired you potentially they're not only like all right we're bringing in the crazy dog person and then we're bringing in the young lady and then now she's pulled out this this toy dog, <laughs> you know, so you've got like three levels of their like, how nuts am I feeling right now? And how like little do they trust you? So it, yeah, what has that experience been like? Well, so on top of that, like what you all, what you just said, these people are, are in distress when they call me for tracking. 
right? So most hunters, they are so concerned about the welfare of the animal that they've wounded um, and mm-hmm. they're, they're upset. So it's like, I try to really put myself in their shoes a lot because they're yeah. upset. You know, they're very worried. They are uh, terrified of leaving um, a mortally wounded animal out there and not recover it. And then on top of that, you know, they're feeling, they're like, you know, they're, they're putting their trust in either, you know, something they saw online or a buddy that told them that they should call me or whatever it is. And, and so like, I can't really can't imagine all that they're feeling. I, I see a yeah. lot of it, you know, with people and part of, aside from all the dog work and the navigating and everything else that goes into to being a tracker, you really have to deal a lot with people when they're, you know, being very upset and emotional and, uh, it's, it makes it all very interesting, but yeah, yeah it's a challenge yeah, for makes- sure. Yeah. And then I, I think we, we derailed cause you've got at least one other dog, right? Oh yeah. So the, my, I have two other dogs actually. <laughs> oh um, gosh. Yeah. So I also have two dogs that are dedicated to scent detection. So to conservation detection uh-huh. and, uh, a Australian shepherd named Delta and she's working line Australian shepherd and, um, mm-hmm. a field line Labrador retriever named Chili Bean. And gotcha. for their selection, I wanted two scent detection dogs that were very different from each other. Uh, that was kind mm-hmm. of my goal. I wanted different styles and also to, uh, you know, help me grow as a trainer to be able to um, have these different dogs to work with and to apply to different types of projects. So that's kind of where their selection came in. Yeah, yeah, you really got quite the variety. And is Aldo Aldo still working as well? So Gander's the only one who's retired? uh, Gander's the only one who's retired. I've basically got three young working dogs right now. So it's it's a lot. But yeah, Gander, uh, Aldo is just about to turn five. So he's really... Oh, yeah. um, Yeah, yeah, so he's he's right at the prime. yeah. Yeah, he is. He's so experienced, but still has all that, you know, young dog... Um, energy and ability to work a lot so yeah 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 I think five was probably my favorite age with Barley um he's now about eight and eight and change and like I feel like five was when he still had the most spunk but also knew the most stuff yeah that's one of my Um, favorite things about working with dogs is is how like they just they're always learning. There's like the, us humans are always learning. The dogs are yeah. Yeah, every year. It's, it's a little different and, and better and, or maybe not always better, but it's, it's always different and they're always <laughs> learning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I found it really, um, I don't even want to say surprising because I've taught puppy kindergarten and whatnot before, but living with Niffler and watching, you know, literally from like week to week, month to month, how much he changed as, and he's still, he's only 15 or 16 months old right now. Um, so he's still got a lot of growing up to do, um, but just how fast it, it goes is really, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's kind of go back, you know, to to Aldo and his selection. So you said you I, did you go towards the the tackles towards the dashes because of um, what Suzanne, Susanna, Suzanne, yeah, Suzanne, because um, you said she ran some dashes as well. Yeah. So she's from Germany originally, and so dachshunds oh, are uh-huh. super common breed there, just in general, but especially for any type of hunting work. So she uh, she had dachshunds when I met her, and. I tried actually really hard to not be influenced by that. I was like, just because my mentor has this breed, I, I don't know that this is going to be the right fit for me. So I went to uh, some tracking events. We have our blood tracking organization mm-hmm. has training events where you get to watch a lot of different dogs work. I watched a lot of different breeds. There's actually breeds out there that are more, uh, dachshunds aren't considered a blood tracking specialist. They're actually, as far as hunting breeds go, supposed to be a versatile breed. And they are. Okay. Um, there mm-hmm. are actually breeds out there that were bred to be blood tracking specialists. So I looked into some of those and uh, tried to keep an open mind. But I also got to, you know, got to work really closely with Susanna's dogs. And um, and so really did decide that I wanted a dachshund. Uh, and a lot of it was just my familiarity with their tracking style. 
you know, with blood tracking, it, blood tracking is such a misnomer because we call it blood tracking, but, you know, we're, we're kind of doing the classic, like throwing the trailing and the tracking terminology and kind of blurring them together. So some dogs do more like trailing where they're, they're going to be using a little bit more air scent, but the dachshunds really tend to stay really tight to the line to really, really track in the footsteps of the animal. And, uh, for me as a tracker, I want to like be the little detective and find every little bit mm-hmm. of evidence because honestly with tracking, most of the time the animal actually isn't mortally wounded and it's your job to kind of figure that out and to know when to quit and to be able to say, Hey Hunter, like you can have peace of mind because this animal, this isn't a mortal wound. But in order to make that determination, you need to have evidence. You need to see the, what the animal's doing um, as far as how they're traveling, how often they're resting or laying down, what type of evidence they're leaving on the trail. And so I found with, with, uh, kind of a slower working, uh, more clo- tight to the line breed like dachshunds that, that could be the kind of tracker that, that I would want to be where we're kind of, uh, you know, getting every little bit of information that we can and, and trying to make the, the best decision. Yeah, wow, that is so there's that's so fascinating. And already, like, you know, again, I, I know so little about tracking. And I hadn't, I don't think I I'm sure I've read it before, but I don't think I had fully solidified in my mind the difference between tracking and trailing. And so what are some of these other, um, like blood specialist breeds or some of the other breeds you considered? So Bavarian Mountain Hound is one that okay. um, is considered more of a, a tracking specialist and use a lot in, uh, for, for wounded game tracking. And, um, I mean, we call it blood tracking, but because blood tracking really, I think it's easier to explain what it is we're doing, but really what we're doing is we're tracking one specific animal and often there's no blood at all, which is the whole reason that we're there. So, uh, these dogs right. have Bavarians have really cold noses. They can, um, usually work with an older trail. Uh, compared to some other mm-hmm. breeds, including probably dachshunds. Um, so that's one. There's a there's a breed I wasn't really considering, but there's a the other specialist breed I can think of is the Alpine Dachsbrock, which is uh, some of these are kind of really obscure, kind of European based breeds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Bavarian was really the other one that I was really thinking of. It's a yeah. I just I town. just had to Google them because I like even having worked in a shelter, I'm like I've never heard of this, which is pretty unusual. I don't yeah. run into dog breeds I haven't heard of before. And yeah, so for anyone who's at home, they're kind of a stocky hound. They've got the huge ears. They've got a, a it looks like generally kind of a coppery body, but a much darker face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it almost they almost kind of remind me of like. Go ahead. I was just saying, there's not a lot bred in the United States, which is probably why yeah. a lot of people haven't really come upon them. Yeah. Um, there's they tr- almost remind me of, like, if you had, like, a Rhodesian Ridgeback build body and then, like, a coonhound type Yeah, face. like a red bone coonhound they sometimes get, yeah. get mistaken yeah. for. Yeah. The, there's so much more. So, uh, blood tracking has such a rich tradition and history in Europe. So that's why you see so yeah. many more European breeds actually specializing in it. It's such a part of hunting over there. And in some countries it's a required, like if you have a, a hunt, an organized hunt, you must have tracking dogs and handlers on call um, where wow. it's, it's quite different in the United States. And it's, you know, more or less popular depending on where you go, but um, it is so more ingrained over there that you see usually if you if you find a breed that's kind of specifically for blood tracking it's a european breed yeah yeah that that makes a lot of sense and yeah i i mean i could imagine like if you said that you were looking for a tracking dog for for hunting i would have been thinking yeah like our coon hounds or um some of our other kind of typical like southeastern u.s hound dogs um what what are they bred for if not for for blood tracking what are what do they do more of like the other hound yeah breeds in the yeah. states like, um, what is what's kind of what is kind of the difference as far as like working style if you know um now i'm throwing questions at you we didn't prepare yeah. for i i'm actually like yeah i'm not super uh knowledgeable about different hound breeds but i do know that in terms of bringing it kind of back to blood tracking is that if you were to look at 
all the different breeds that we have, like especially the group that I'm a part of, United Blood Trackers, we have all sorts of dogs. It's really, yeah. and there are coon hounds and there are, you know, plot hounds and blood hounds and there's all sorts of different hound breeds that people have and, and, um, and train with a lot of success. And the, the big reason for that is because tracking is really all about, you know, teaching the dog to keep on the thing that you start them on. Right. And a lot of, yeah. um, a lot of dogs are capable of that. So- yeah, no, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know plenty of dual purpose dogs that are what we think of as your traditional detection dogs also mm-hmm. do tracking, um, or trailing again. Now I'm not sure which one I'm talking about because I haven't seen how the dogs work, I guess. Um, and you know, I, I know I've got a friend with a, a Rottweiler Chihuahua cross that she does like tracking for fun with. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it, all dogs have noses and while we might have like different genetic propensities that help us out a lot, um, I'm sure there are some like fabulous tracking. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like the, like a peeking geese or something like you could teach a peeking geese how to do this. (laughs) (laughs) It just might not be the most, um, uh, what am I trying to think? Uh, like the dog might not have quite enough stamina, let's say. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it just really also just depends on what your goals and priorities are. It's mm -hmm. kind of like this conversation could almost apply to a lot of, of other things when you're talking about, you know, choosing a dog or choosing a breed. It's really, you know, what's, what's your goal? Are you going to be, you know, tracking every day? You're going to be kind of crazy like me and out there all the time, all day long. Well, you know, you probably want to take that into consideration when, when choosing people might not think of, of working line dachshunds that of a dog that could go, go, go all day, but they, they really are a very high energy Mm -hmm. uh, dog. So it's just like another thing to take into consideration. We have a, we have a member in United Blood Tracker who's got this dog, this rescue dog named Brutus, and he's a, she calls him a pug hound. And he's this very small little dog, you know, with a, with a little, you know, smushed in face and cute little underbite. And uh, he's a great little tracking dog. Um, yeah. As, you know, especially for, for the terrain that she has and, you know, the type of training schedule she keeps. He's, he does great. So we find excellent tracking dogs in all sorts of, shapes and sizes and breeds. Hey, I'm Taylor, and I'm the handler for Kepler, a mini Aussie in training for muscle detection work. Before canine conservationists, I didn't even know about all the possibilities with dogs in conservation. Now I've jumped feet first into the training. I wouldn't have been able to without the support I gained from being a part of the podcast Patreon. My favorite support comes from the group calls. I've been able to get alert training help and felt completely welcome even though I'm a complete novice to this kind of training. The group calls also help guide my questions for my one-on-ones with Kayla. The information is invaluable and the community is kind. I hope to see you there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's funny. Um, Where I grew up in northern Wisconsin, I think we must have had some backyard breeder who did a bunch of pug beagle crosses Mm because like half of my friends growing up had puggles. which I've since realized is not like a popular designer breed. It's not like Labradoodles where like everyone knows what they are. Um, So it must've just been a local thing, (laughs) but um, I had a bunch of friends who did, you know, all sorts of fun stuff with their little pug beagle crosses. (laughs) So, yeah. So I'm trying to think what else we wanted to talk about kind of within that breed selection. So maybe um, we can pivot back towards detection then and talk about, you know, you said that when you were picking out, your other two dogs, um, you wanted dogs that were going to work really differently. So what kind of drew you to like, you know, we've got a herding breed and we've got a retriever. What, um, what about their work styles instead of doing like, I don't know, a pointer and a German shepherd or a German shepherd and a cocker spaniel or, you know, something else. Well, part of it probably ties into some of the things I had kind of already decided. So I was, for sure interested in having a working line lab. Um, I had kind of this, you know, I'm bringing in kind of my personal biases here where I grew up with labs, really familiar with, with them, um, had worked a bit, uh, through dog training with some field line labs and just knew that I wanted one for, for one of my detection dogs. So from there it was like, okay, so what breed uh, or dog potentially is going to be a bit different than that and have a little bit of a different style. And, uh, so 
again, kind of some biases of dogs that I've worked with or lived with, um, working line herding dogs is something that um, I was really comfortable working with. And I, to me, just felt so different um, as far as you know, generally being less independent, um, a little bit more handler focused you know, all the typical stuff. And I know, I've, you know, in your other podcast, you've kind of talked about, about this when it comes to herding dogs. Um, so yeah, that's really, I kind of started yeah. with like something that I knew and really knew I wanted and yeah. kind of going through there, like, Oh, what's different. And, you know, and, and then of course, from there going into all the typical stuff, looking into to pedigrees and, you know, what the dog's mm-hmm. relatives are, are working in and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been really, really interesting. I just was really attached to this idea of having dogs, two dogs with different styles and kind of going from there and really narrowing down maybe what the future would look like as far as future dogs based on, based on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I really love what you've done because I think as far as an individual handler, at least that I've spoken to, you've got the widest variety of breeds. And I think it's like, it's just, it's so fascinating because I, I know I have thought about like loving the idea of working with a bunch of these different breeds, but then when it comes down to it and (laughs) it comes down time to pick a dog, I'm so enamored with border collies that, um, you know, we'll see. I'm not going to say never say never. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, I think so many of us, we fall in love with our breed or our working style or whatever. And I love that both, you know, I think it's a smart business decision to be able to have really varied dogs and also a really admirable choice as far as pushing yourself as a trainer (laughs) to, to learn how to work between all of these different, I mean, I can't imagine having with only four dogs, having a much more varied set (laughs) than what you've got. It definitely makes living with them, you know, very interesting as well. Right. So you have, uh, one thing I noticed with the between the Labrador and the and the Aussie is that you know the Labrador had never lived with herding dogs before, and herding dogs, you know, communication wise, can be a little bit different than the bunch mm-hmm. of labs that you know that Chili Bean had had lived with in her young life. So it's just kind of interesting too. It helps me learn more too, you know, yeah. kind of managing all that, and then you have the dachshund and uh, to throw into the mix and. I don't know. It, it keeps things really, really interesting. And I, I'm not saying I don't have, you know, kind of preferences and in the future, things may look really different. I right. definitely see the benefit to, you know, knowing a breed really well and, and, and stick, mm-hmm. kind of sticking to something that you're really knowledgeable and, and comfortable with. And um, there is so much of preference. Like, you know, I think we all have to admit that preference plays into it a ton and, um, I think part of that is why I chose working line Aussie, you know, as my mm-hmm. not Labrador breed versus something else. I mean, there's a lot of different right. breeds that are different than Labradors, right? So, yeah, it's been really yeah, yeah. interesting. It, it, I think it does uh, create some interesting training opportunities and, and learning opportunities. Yeah. What are some of the things, I mean, again, kind of let's, let's talk more in the detection realm, just cause that's a little bit more what I'm comfortable with. Like has, does your handling style have to change dramatically from dog to dog if you're working similar puzzles or yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like? So, um, with the, with Delta, the Australian shepherd, I have to remember to be so much more careful about my, my, accidental cues, you know, with unintentionally, Mm -hmm. you know, um, giving her hints and just things that I I might not notice that I'm doing. So making sure that I'm, you know, not looking towards the hide or uh, doing anything else intentionally that's going to um, create problems. Um, An example of this and some work that we were doing with her is we were, we had some known targets out that had uh, radio telemetry units um, and we were having to be really careful about making sure that the telemetry receiver had the headphones on so that, uh, Delta couldn't hear the telemetry beeps to know that we were close to a, oh, to a known target. Right. Yeah. So these are sort of the things that like with her, um, that she's going to cue in on and she's going to use, use everything available to her as far as information where not saying that, that 
chili bean the Labrador won't, but I can be when I'm working with her, like a little bit more, um, is she a little bit more forgiving with, with things like that? Yeah. Um, so uh, on the other hand, you know, like not to kind of do like a, a negative on Delta and a positive on chili bean, but on the other hand, it's like when I'm working with, um, with Delta, it's kind of that close working, you know, handler oriented style in some cases, especially with certain um, field conditions is really nice. I don't have to really worry about her, uh, you know, yeah, I guess like, you know, going off the riverbank and things like that, that, that uh, <laughs> yeah. I find with, with my Labrador, right. It's like flinging yourself uh, with, with, with no holes barred, you know, abandon off a, of a steep bank or something like that. Um, and I don't know if that's like kind of a general herding dog thing or, or just kind of Delta, but she just seems to have a little bit more sense of self-preservation. And among those that I work with, with the field line Labradors, they kind of tend to agree with some of my sentiment about the, the lack of self-preservation that some of these labs can have. And so I don't know. I just yeah. find that, that my focus has to shift on, you know, depending on the dog mm -hmm. as far as like, what, you know, as you know, you're always, it, it's always surprised me how mentally taxing it is when you're working with your dog because you're doing a million things at once, right? It yeah. might look like the casual observer that you're just kind of, you know, not doing as much mentally as we are, but we really are. And it's kind of like you shift to whatever needs to be shifted to do for that dog. So. Do you agree with the, yeah. is that pretty common with the border collies as well? Like they seem to be a little bit yeah, more I would in touch. I would with say so. Not launching themselves <laughs> off a really steep embankment or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they seem to do a little bit more problem solving on the fly versus, um, yeah, the labs that I've worked with, I think, yeah, absolutely will just charge through things and they're fast workers. They're really, really fun to work mm -hmm. with. But yeah, I, I would say um, a little bit less thoughtful and, you know, sometimes you don't need or want thoughtful. Right. Ex exactly. Um, that's what's yeah, fun like, about I don't, I, I don't think either one of us is saying that one is better than the no. other, but like, I know for me personally, I really like a really responsive dog mm -hmm. in the field, probably because I'm a little bit of a control freak. Um, <laughs> so that's partly where the border collies come through. But you know, back when I was at working dogs for conservation and I got to handle a variety of breeds, Barley, I mean, he was my favorite dog to handle because he was mine. But he wasn't necessarily the easiest, even though he was mine. Like, I, there were a couple other dogs there that I, th I found easier to work with um, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's a little bit of give and take. And I know, um, again, at Working Dogs for Conservation, they would say that they, um, they generally taught the new handlers and kind of trained people up using more of the labs or even the Malinois before they worked with the border collies because especially the border collies and I, I would imagine Aussies are pretty similar. I actually haven't worked with an Aussie. They are just so quick to pick up on patterns before you've even realized that you've made one. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, not that labs don't pick up on patterns, but, but border collies are, you know, they're, they're pretty notorious for being like preposterously sensitive to that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's good, right? I mean, it keeps us on our toes to be aware of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it just shifts on what you have to be um, most aware of, I guess. And so different dogs kind of uh, place different priorities on on things that we really have to be on yeah. top of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it reminds me, you know, one of the other experiences that I've had is working with one dog that had relatively significant prey drive and would actually take off after animals and another dog that never ever, I mean, she didn't even look sideways at prairie dogs that were skitter skittering under her feet. You know, she was just a really spectacular dog in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, working one of those dogs was much more exhausting. She was a spectacular detection dog, but you really had to be so on top of everything that was going on in the environment and so on top of watching her body language to tell that when she disappeared into the bushes, you know, that last bit of her that you saw, <laughs> did it look like she was on scent, in which case that's great, or did it look like she was after, you know, a critter, in which case you need to call her back right now. 
So yeah, that's, again, I think it's just, it's really cool to be able to switch back and forth. And I think, again, especially those of us um, like myself, maybe like Laura Holder, a couple of us who have fallen into our breeds, um, or even though I have two dogs and they do work differently, I don't get as much day-to-day practice um, switching as, as you must. And, you know, that also, you know, pivoting towards tracking and detection. So you don't have any dogs that do both. You just, um, you've got kind of specified Aldo versus chili bean and Delta, right? Right. Yeah. So at this, at this point, I don't have dogs that cross train. I'm not against the idea. It's just that, mm-hmm. um, I don't currently do that. I think if I had started scent detection earlier that gander actually would have been a candidate for both Uh but i think he's pretty unusual in that regard um and one of the big things i think that would prevent me from cross training a dog is something that you just mentioned prey drive so with tracking dogs we kind of uh for blood tracking anyway that prey drive is a really important piece uh, of the reward system mm. because we are actually rewarding yeah. the dog with the thing that they are finding. And it keeps the training in really simple because it's, it's basically they are being rewarded with the thing that they're finding. They are allowed to interact with yeah. the animal, um, the, the deceased animal. So, when you're allowing a dog to do that, you're allowing a dog to go over and put its mouth on, you know, and lick and smell and, and interact, um, you know, although you yeah. can tugs on the little leg and, and things like that. You just have to be really careful about that because here's two fields yeah. that despite all their similarities, it's like, you know, we, the worst thing you can have is an animal that's interacting with your target when you're doing conservation detection um, it, it, in that way. So we just have to be really careful about that. Um like I said, I think you could, for sure, there's dogs out there that could do it, and I wouldn't be opposed to it. But currently, the dogs I have, there's not going to be cross-training. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and that was something I'd always wondered about. Um, you know, I, I, I th- before I got into the conservation dog world, I, had, I joined a bunch of different search and rescue learning groups and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, and was always a little bit confused about the tracking and trailing dogs and being like, wait, wait, wait. So they're not ball driven and you don't reward them with food, like not understanding these other reinforcement contingencies that you could be using. So, so then if he finds something, you actually let Aldo kind of go up and investigate it and kind of scratch that prey drive itch with whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It keeps things really yeah, nice and, cool. and simple really. Um, and yeah. it's, it makes dog selection, I think, nice and simplified because, uh, you know, you can focus on finding dogs that are really prey driven and really motivated by, by the animal, Mm -hmm. by, by an animal. Right. And, um, the interesting thing too, is that, you know, more than half of the tracks that we do, the animal actually isn't mortally wounded. So we don't, it's really intermittent reinforcement by nature of the entire deal where they're only finding 30 to 40%. Um, but just the, the tracking down of something that's wounded. So taking in that, um, that smell of, uh, the adrenaline smell that a wounded animal puts out and then, you know, some, once in a while, you get some blood evidence and things like that. Having a dog that's motivated by that, it's nice yeah. and straightforward. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine like these things on like a neurochemical level, it makes sense that they would be some of some sort of like primary reinforcer. Like, yeah, the animal isn't getting something, but just, you know, like they're not getting a piece of food. They're not getting a toy, but it makes sense. You know, if you, t- if you watch nature documentaries, like they're tracking down, um, injured animals, they're tracking down females in heat. Like this is all part of like the evolutionary history of like most predators, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And then when we've got dogs that we've just bred for generations and generations to be even better at it or more specialized or whatever, it makes, makes a ton of sense that we can kind of this simplest, cleanest training is just relying on that and not complicating it with, (laughs) with other reinforcers. Yeah. And, you know, so, there's, we always have to be really careful too, you know, making sure the animal is, um, you know, doesn't 
still need to be euthanized and things like that. So right. like the safety element of like allowing your dog to approach an, an animal. Um, like yeah, that. especially but, a bear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, that's kind of mostly what I was thinking of. Yeah. Especially moose so, are and, one and of the scariest you, ones. But. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess you're too far east for elk, but they're not great either. Really, pretty much anything that you would try to track down, honestly, um, yeah, it's probably something you don't want your dog just running up to. Um, And you said you work all on leash for tracking, right? Yeah, so we are, I would anyway, due to his size, but uh, legally we're required in Maine to track on leash. And that's the case in all the northeastern states. Um, there is some tradition okay. of off-leash tracking in some of the southern states, and I think maybe somewhere in the Midwest. Um, but, okay, yeah. yeah. For us, it's all on-leash. And that that actually loops back to the whole breed selection thing, where it's like that's one thing that you consider when you are looking into breed selection right. or something like blood tracking, as if you're on-leash. Yeah, on yeah. Again, because I, I imagine, um, you know, both if you're watching old timey video movies or um, even, you know, I, kn- I know I've heard of some of the poaching tracking dogs in South Africa, like those dogs, it's a pack of dogs, they're released, they work together. And I believe that they've got, there's a guy in South Africa where they're following the dogs in a helicopter, like they're that hands off oh, wow. with letting the dogs do their work on their own. And they're, they're also, again, they're working in like a pack um, which is really different from what you're doing. And it just, gosh, it's maybe it's just because I know so little about it, but it feels like the tracking trailing world has so many different variables and so much more to it. <laughs> um, like, I don't think you would ever work multiple detection dogs at a time. I know I've heard of people using them to confirm each other, but I don't think generally people run multiple dogs at once. And in the tracking world, that's not atypical. Yeah, especially in the off-leash states, I know some folks that will, you know, work more than one dog at a time, or even on-leash states, sometimes with training, they'll have, you know, uh, one dog and handler go ahead, and then kind of like a a team, a a leash team behind for, like, training purposes. Um, Yeah, oh, cool. I've never done that personally, but... um, Yeah. The thing you have to be careful of, too, is when you're dealing with the reward being, like, this, this actual prey animal then you have to worry about you know resource guarding and competitiveness yeah. and things like that like between two dogs you don't want there to be an issue so yeah yeah i could imagine that definitely being a concern and i mean again so my first thought when you're talking about having one dog follow another and you said you haven't done this but wouldn't that what if the first dog goes off track is there a chance that you've accidentally trained the second dog to follow the first dog instead of following the track or so I'm not super familiar with folks that, that do it this way, but I think what it is is you yeah. the second dog would be super experienced. And then oh, the okay. dog that goes ahead would be the inexperienced dog. And gotcha. it's almost like your your backup, almost like the because a lot of experienced tracking uh-huh. dogs um, are really used to like people having searched around for it themselves. So there's like a lot of, of course, track yeah. contamination. And then we're also used to, even though it's not legal in my state of like people trying their personal dog first. So a really right. experienced uh, tracking dog actually has learned that, you know, I'll just ignore that other dog scent kind of a thing. Gotcha. So yeah. I that makes sense. So it's actually the more it. experienced dog that's going second. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, if, if anyone who's listening knows, they can always write in and we will, <laughs> we will amend. Um, and maybe there are different, uh, different exercises in which it, you know, maybe it could be both even. Um, so how do you, how do you start a tracking dog for the sort of work that you're doing? Because I know when I've looked at, you know, like Fancy Dog Sports Academy has an intro to tracking course. They're doing a lot of like cookie crumb trails and then kind of learning, teaching, teaching the dog by spacing out those cookies. But if you're using the prey animal as the reward, you're not doing that, I assume, right? Right. So, uh, of course, like anything, there's a lot of variability in how people train. But just like in the conservation detection world where we have like setups, we have a hide situation, we have these mock tracks that we do, um, especially for our young dogs. And we like to use actual animal materials for this. So uh, step one is make, making sure that if you live with someone that they're very tolerant of, of your use of freezer space. 
Uh, so we would use, yeah. um, we would have frozen animal blood that we would use. Um, you uh-huh. can use, we would use, in the case of deer, we would use like a, like a foot, like a hoof where we would attach to something with stick or people even have these tracking shoes where the hoof actually attaches to the side of your foot and you just walk and you're kind of stamping off the interdigital (laughs) gland scent because there's a there's a gland Uh in a deer's foot that set that is responsible for a lot of this scent that they're tracking um so that's really how we do it and the goal is not to be 100% realistic because these dogs know the difference between a training track and a real one um, the idea is, you know, being able to gradually increase the difficulty, you know, putting in some turns, maybe laying this practice track over some fresh deer scent that you know is out there, um, something like that, so that they can have an opportunity to practice, especially the young dogs. We, With a young puppy, I'd take something really obvious, like a piece of liver on a string, a deer liver, and I would drag that along and make a training track and let it age for a few hours. Um, and then, uh, even leave the liver chunk at the end, you know, and have the, the puppy track to that and then have that liver chunk to kind of chew on a little bit as a reward. Um, so gotcha. yeah. that's, that's kind of a training scenario. The things that I really like to do too, when you have an experienced dog is, uh, to take that young dog along when you go on tracks. And so if it's a pretty short track, say that, say the animal is found within two or 300 yards, you know, you can run back to the to the car while the hunter is is field dressing that animal. Put your experienced dog away, take that pup out and have the pup, you know, run that track just to kind of get a sense of like real what a real track smells like and Whoa, what the scent profile. Yeah. There's so much uh scent profile that you can't kind of mimic on a training track there's you know when the places where the animal brushes up on vegetation there's just like that crushed vegetation that the animal is walking on and there's you know we have a lot of reason to suspect that that's a lot of what the uh, tracking dogs are using and um, we've got the interdigital mm-hmm. glands and so yeah we like to do that if we are lucky enough to already have a an experienced dog that can find the animal first and Um, we even Mm -hmm. do what we suggest for people training their dogs is if they are a hunter or they know hunters that have an animal, it doesn't really need to be tracked because it's a very obvious trail, you know, to where they can go and and harvest their animals. Yeah, exactly. To still give them a call and have them, you know, practice with their, with their young dog so that they can kind of just start putting things together and have like a really cool setup opportunity to be rewarded. And, you know, if your friend doesn't mind, if the dog kind of, you know, hangs around their, their deer and sniff it and, and, uh, you know, play with it a little bit. Yeah. 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 I grew up, my dad is a, is a big deer hunter and I've just been the whole time we've been talking, I'm like, Oh my gosh, my dad would so love having this sort of help and would also be the sort of person. And he mostly hunts on his own property. Um, if there's anyone in Northern Wisconsin who wants to get into this, my dad would absolutely be the sort of person who would let you run your dog out to practice even on like a known thing. Um, it is legal in Wisconsin so, yeah. and there's some trackers oh, there good. for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good to double check that it's legal. Forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> um, so kind of circle, I had one more question, um, kind of on the tracking thing, maybe, maybe a couple more, but one that's in my head right now. Um, what are kind of your average distances? So you said a shorter one would be two or 300 meters, something you could take a puppy on to test or to, to do some practice, but I would imagine sometimes it's longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they can be up to, I guess, um, a recovery, like one of the longest recoveries we've had where it has been close to six or seven miles. Wow. And so this Uh is where you start getting, I'm trying not to delve into the weeds too much, but this is when you start getting into how the animal is is wounded and if it needs to be humanely euthanized or not. So that sort of track, like a really long one would be, would be a devastating wound that you the the best strategy to to uh euthanize and recover the animal was to kind of be uh be going kind of hard on it and kind of pushing it in order to do what's best for the animal which is euthanize it most um most mortal hits 
are organ related. And those are things that uh, really, if left alone, that they should be uh, expiring within a few hundred yards. Gotcha. So, so yeah, there you wouldn't necessarily be pushing the animal. Right. The um, reason I we'll would go- a, I'll probably put a little content warning on this episode just <laughs> for anyone yeah. who's really squeamish about this. But because uh, now I'm curious and we can dive <laughs> into this now and again. Warning, we're about to get gross. It's fine. Um, what what would be an example of like, would that be like, you've hit it in the haunch? The, the really uh, like, long where, track? Where have you, yeah. Where have you, hit, where has the hunter hit it? Where okay. the animal's not going to die very quickly, but still needs to be, um, needs to be collected because they're not going to recover. It would be a leg wound on, a, gotcha. on an ungulate. Mm-hmm. So not on a bear. We don't, yeah. because bears are so, um, Ungulates are more like have to really lean on these broken limbs, and uh, often with bears, we don't recover like a like a limb wound, a leg wound. Gotcha. But yeah, these long ones are are leg wounds, and it's where you start getting into like yeah, there's definitely content warning things because it's not an sure, organ yeah. wound, so the the animal, if left alone, isn't going to die on its own. It's going to actually lay down and clot that wound and actually be able to to walk around on three legs the problem with leg wounds is that that wound has then caused that animal to be susceptible really susceptible to other things and so yeah. the responsible thing is to uh to to try to euthanize that animal if we can so that's that's the only type of wound where we would go for miles and miles that sort of thing if um a lot of the wounds that we get are non-fatal muscle wounds and yeah. we we might track that animal for a mile or two and then gather all the evidence that we found along the whole track and then be like, yep, this seems like a muscle wound based on this evidence. We're going to give up the track. And often these are the animals that the hunter gets on trail cameras a couple of weeks later with a, with a nice scabbed over uh, wound. So um, gotcha. the only yeah. other case where we would go a really long ways on a, on a mortally hit animal that might be similar to some distances with leg wounds would be there's certain organ wounds that take a little bit of time before the animal expires. And sometimes hunters, they don't know this. They don't, they're either inexperienced hunters that are still learning or they haven't identified that wound as one of these types of wounds uh, as fatal wounds. So they just keep tracking and they keep tracking and they're pushing that animal and they don't realize that they are. So they're, they're creating this like very long track Gotcha. Um, where, where if, if they had just waited, yeah, yeah, it would have it would have died would have on laid its own. down, you know, when it was comfortable and lay down and and then expired at a short distance. Gotcha. So yeah, a lot of what yeah, we do is sense. like is is informing hunters about this. Yeah, stuff. So I love. I mean, it's so fascinating. Outreach. It's so yeah. There's so much to it, and I know I remember um, my dad hunting at some uh, when I was a kid. Um, had it he hit a deer and basically and he was so mad about this but you know this is the sort of thing that a more experienced hunter would recognize this is what happened he basically grazed across the like the the point of the shoulder blades of the deer mm-hmm. so you know if he'd been a couple inches further back it would have been a really solid body cavity hit but i don't know if the animal shifted or you know scope was off or whatever it was um and missed oh. and um yeah, ended up with, there was some blood, some hair, um, and he tracked the animal for a little while, and then it was pretty clear to him, at least, um, that it seemed like the animal was just going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, there's a, um, there's a lot of evidence that we can look at, like hair, the type of blood, <laughs> the amount of blood, um, if the animal's laying down or not, that helps us kind of determine yeah. those same things that, that your dad probably did. And um, and I was going to say, too, you, you said, oh, the scope was off or something. Well, there's lots of things that happen, like it could have deflected right. on a branch or, you know, one of the things that we try to... we. We do a lot of education with new trackers. We do a lot of education with with hunters, but we also try to educate the public about, you know, that uh, this is a very small percentage of, like, if you ask an experienced hunter how often they've had a problem recovering their animal, it's very few. It's just that Mm -hmm. in certain areas, like here in Maine, we have a really big hunting heritage um, and we have a lot of hunters. So it, it keeps the few trackers that there are very busy, but this is not... Uh, a typical situation in hunting. Right. And so that's part of what we try to educate folks about as well is that, you know, um, these people are concerned about the welfare of the animal. If they weren't, they wouldn't be calling us. 
And, right. you know, they would just be like, oh, well, and call it a day, right? But they're trying to do everything that they can to recover that animal. And uh, and so that's that's kind of part of some of the information that we like to put out there. Like things go wrong, you yeah, know, no matter definitely. how hard people, you know, practice with their guns or sighting their guns um, or their, you know, practice with their bow, things happen. And it's really what you do after things are going wrong that, that really matters. So... Yeah, it's another big point that we like to make. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, this is um, probably, this is a really good example of how, you know, conservation and hunting are are tied together. Mm -hmm. And I like, you're probably the best example of you're like, yeah, my income is split between the two. Like, you, you said that you, you get quite a bit of work in the fall. And that's, great too because I, I don't know when your hunting season is in Maine but you know peak hunting season in Wisconsin is kind of uh, like Thanksgiving to New Year's and mm-hmm. that's not a time of year where you're doing a lot of conservation detection dog stuff in general <laughs> right we start a little we have bear a pretty early bear season here okay and we have a few different deer seasons so I actually start at the end of August and go until the mid-December with tracking wow but there's, there's uh, yeah, various- I guess I'm, I'm not sure when bear season is in Wisconsin <laughs> There, there's various degrees of how busy those seasons mm-hmm. are though. Like I can certainly do, I, and do scent detection work, you know, while there's tracking going on, it's kind of, it becomes a little nuanced as far as scheduling all that. But, um, yeah, if I'm working with somebody in the fall, it's like, I might have to be answering my phone, you know, every once in a while while yeah. we're out here in the field, because I might have to talk to hunters about taking a track after this. And like little Aldo is, you know, uh, coming with me sometimes on scent detection projects to, you know, be in a, in a crate off to the side in the shade to maybe go tracking afterwards. <laughs> right. Wow. Oh my gosh. You must be exhausted. <laughs> it's pretty tiring. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could talk yeah. a lot about sleep deprivation in the fall, but that's the nature of any kind <laughs> yeah. of like on-call thing where you can't predict, you know, exactly when right. things yeah. are going to You happen. can't. Yeah, you can't say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have two tracks next week. I'll plan around that. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, we're kind of wrapping up here. This is fascinating and, um, uh, you know, an interesting diversion for a lot of people. But I think before we wrap it up, I did want to talk a little bit about more of your the science dogs of new england just make sure people know where to find you tell us if you've got any upside uh, exciting projects there to bring it back to the conservation dog specific detection dog specific stuff yeah so for science dogs uh right now our big project is working with wood turtles and Mm -hmm. wood turtle nests in maine and their wood turtles are um, a big concern as they are in a lot of places and so we're really excited to be doing wood turtle work um, with the dogs. We are starting kind of a new piece of that where we'll be doing some wood turtle nest detection, um, which is really exciting. Um, Kind of a a neat new level of challenging because these nests are not visible, um, you know, as a a turtle would be, right? So the dog might point out a turtle and kind of go and confirm that. So kind of a a really neat uh, thing. We have some suspicion that wood turtles might be, you know, nesting in places where we wouldn't necessarily expect them to. So we want to, we want to try to figure some of that out. And um, we've really enjoyed, we've been working on a, um, a project in partnership with the Center for Wildlife Studies, and they're doing some really amazing wood turtle work in the state. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be continuing that. We've got, um, hopefully some additional uh, work doing some scat detection coming up, which isn't mm-hmm. completely official yet. So um, unfortunately can't, can't talk too much yeah. about that as you know how it is, but um, yep. yeah, just really, really exciting stuff. I try to post as much um, as many updates as I can on our Facebook page, the problem with wood turtle work for those of you that are familiar with uh, with these turtles is that there's quite a bit of um, confidentiality that goes around talking about right. their locations mm-hmm. and their research. So I am limited to how many fun pictures and stories and things like that that I can, can get out there. So right. um, they don't—they're not a 
a target species that lends themselves to like a lot of really fun updates, unfortunately, um, because we just have to be very careful about, uh, you know, making sure that that we keep their locations um, under wraps. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. There's a, you know, the, one of the major problems is black market pet trade for them. So, yeah. So we can't can't go posting yeah. about it. So it's not as yeah. it's not as so fun for the social media, but it's a really fun project. It's a, a, a extremely yeah. rewarding project, and it's been a a great um, a great partnership where uh, that we've been participating in for three years now. Um, so that's great yeah yeah and where so where can people find you online for both i don't know if you've got the same website for both um businesses and especially if people are interested in learning more about blood tracking do you have any anywhere you'd like to point them yes so for scent detection work uh the science dogs of new england website which is uh, sciencedogsne.com and then we are on uh, facebook and instagram as well we um for the sake of people that prefer not to see photos of dead game animals. Um, and just mm-hmm. because I realize that there's a lot of sensitivity around those issues, I do keep uh, the tracking piece a little bit separated. So I have a separate Facebook page yeah. um, for tracking that's just called Lindsay Ware Large Game Tracking. So you can get lots of tracking. I, I love talking about tracking stories on that page. Yeah. So if you're interested in that. Um, in general, for learning more about blood tracking, United Blood Trackers is the, our national organization uh, that I belong mm-hmm. to, and it's a great organization. There's lots of free articles on there. You can see an interactive map where you can click on your state and f- get contact information for trackers that are in your area. Um, there's uh, United Blood Trackers is great if you think you want to get into tracking. We're a super supportive bunch that really loves uh, mentoring new trackers and, and helping them out as much as possible. Um, and then Whoa. finally, the the best book to look into is a book called uh, Tracking Dogs for Finding Wounded Deer, which is by John John and A. And it's a great book all about training and breed selection and uh, introductions to this whole like detective side of tracking, how to determine what kind of yeah. wound you're dealing with, um, what kind of evidence means, you know, different types of hits. It's just really, really good. Yeah, no, I, I could see myself actually really, really enjoying this. I'm loving, you know, these concepts of the detective work and figuring all of that out. It just sounds, it just sounds fascinating. So I'm really grateful for you sharing all that, all that knowledge with us. And we'll make sure all the, those links are in the show notes. Um, so thanks again for coming on the podcast, Lindsay. This was awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.